Podcast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bielke. Personal stories. Gene's personal story. I did the show all by myself last week, and I miss David. Really did. Oh, that's very sweet. I know. You're not going to get that kind of compliment again, so just suck it up, my friend. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully, hopefully there'll be no contextual need for that kind of comment. Well, you know what? Could- Part of it is the fact that we kind of live our lives in public. And a lot sort of what of. we do, sort of. I mean, we do have private lives, but a lot of what we do, because I write the TechNightOwl.com, I have the tech show, we have this show together, I'm in touch with a lot of people. A lot of the things I do and say become public <laughs> fodder for the public, you know. Yeah, I guess that's true, right? And of course, the message boards, our points of view are expressed there. And we have people who follow what we do, so they're concerned when things happen that are not good. And they say nice things like happy birthday messages when I reach a certain age. Mm-hmm. But speaking of personal stuff, you were away for a full week. Well, yeah, it was more like a week and a half. And and as I commented on the uh, forums, my, my sister-in-law, Amy Biedney, had passed away from brain cancer. And, you know, there's obviously so much sadness wrapped up in that. Um, at the same time, when something like that happens, you start to reflect, obviously, on your own mortality, your own life. And it, it gets you thinking about friendships and personal relationships. And I have to, I have to tell you this little story. Well, first because, of all, before that, yeah. publicly, let me say, sorry to hear, very sorry to hear yeah, about the thanks. death of your sister-in-law. Just to bring things kind of close together, my nephew's wife, this is Robert Steinberg, and his wife's name is Barbara Steinberg, just like my wife, and she had a brain tumor mm. in her 30s. Now, yeah. thank God, or whatever's out there controlling things, she recovered nicely, it took a number of years of rehabilitation and everything else to get her back to normal. Mm-hmm. And she was a mom, and she had children, and things worked out. So it does, however, bring it kind of close to home when something in your family sure. mirrors something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it, it makes you think about your relationships and your friendships. And we had you know the memorial service for Amy, and all of her friends showed up, and this was a someone who had a lot of people who loved her, and uh, so many of them showed up for the memorial and and came to Shiva, you know. And it was it was quite heartwarming to speak to all these people, people she had worked with, and you know, close friends. The thing is, you know, like, like I said, you you reflect upon your friendships, you reflect upon your relationships, and it's funny how things come and go. I just I have to share this. The week that we're recording this, um, I had a voicemail from uh, a lady who um, had called and said that her husband uh, had been thinking a bunch about me and she was wanting to take the initiative to uh, make sure that we get together and see each other. Now, her husband is a fellow by the name of Anil Gupta. And in the world of tattoo work, Anil is basically uh, Michelangelo. He, He is, without a doubt, Gene... Really, truly, the finest tattoo artist in the whole world. And if anybody doubts that, um, and, and for those of you Paracast listeners who are tattoo fans, who are ink fans, I strongly recommend you go over to Anil, A-I-A-N-I-L-G-U-P-T-A, AnilGupta.com, and look at this guy's work online. It will absolutely mesmerize and stun you. The guy is, like I said, Gene, you know, I don't say this lightly, 
he is without any question the world's best, finest, most talented tattoo artist. And the short story is that a number of years ago, in looking into getting uh, ink for myself, I had already gotten one tattoo. Actually, probably at that point, I had a couple of tattoos. I wanted to get something special, and I did some some research, and all fingers pointed back to Anil as the world's single best tattoo artist. So I was living in California at the time. He's in New York City. I was visiting New York, and uh, I was actually staying in an apartment that was just blocks away from his studio. Um, I had discovered that you know, he had this amazing work that he did. And so I called up over there and, uh, uh, you know, just cold called them and spoke to one of his assistants who said, oh, you know, sure, come by, look at his at his books and stuff. Um, but just be forewarned that Anil has a waiting list. I think at that time it was like a two-year waiting list. So basically it was stacked up with appointments for two years. And I was like, oh, man. But I was just like blocks away. So I go walk over there. And I go into this, you know, little pretty modest space, and I'm looking through this, these books of his work, and I'm just stunned. I mean, his capabilities, just off the charts, just a magnificent artist. So anyway, make a long story, and it's a very long story, but I'll, I'll make it very short because we have an interview to, to do today. But it'll, you'll see how this dovetails into our interview today. Uh, I, I, he, he actually had just finished working on somebody. He comes walking out, and I recognized him. I had seen his, his face in a couple of these magazines that had extensive features about him. He comes walking over. Hey, yeah, you know, you like my work? And I'm like, oh, man, do I like your work? He's like, well, uh, uh, you know, uh, whatever. Nice to meet you. Da, da, da. You have a business card. So I hand him my card, Gene. And he looks at it. And he looks up at me. He goes, wait a minute. And I'm like, what? What? He goes, are, are you the Photoshop guy? And I was like, what? So it turns out that Anil had been following my work in computer graphics and in the Mac world for years. This guy knew exactly who I was. He was like, oh, my God, I can't believe you're in my studio. Oh, geez, you know, you want you want work for me? And I was like, uh, uh, yeah, do I want work for you? You're, you're the best. You are the guy. And he, what ended up happening, Gene, he basically changes a bunch of appointments. It was like a week later, I'm sitting in his chair in one eight-and-a-half-hour session, dude. He gave me what is the single most outrageous tattoo on my body. I mean, just absolutely unique. And something that um, I had discussed with some other tattoo artists, my main guy at that time back in California, who told me that what I wanted was technically impossible and just not feasible. So, of course, Anil took this as a challenge and ended up implementing exactly what I wanted better than I could have ever hoped for. Okay, inquiring minds want to know what... what is this tattoo oh, to even describe? I can't even to. You'd have to see a picture of it to even describe it. It, it defies description, really. Uh, so maybe uh, maybe I'll post a picture up on the forums. Maybe not. We'll see. You know, I um, think now we're going to have all our listeners writing letters. Yeah. What does it look like? Is he an alien? What's going on? No, there's there's no. there's not an alien image on my body. Sorry, but but here's the thing. So Anil and I. I mean, we just he he ended up working on me for eight and a half hours. And it was St. Patty's Day. I remember that. You know, we, we sporadically stayed in touch over the years because basically the guy, he ended up going into his sketchbooks, pulling out this illustration of a Native American face rendered like in rock and, and pulling it out of his sketchbook and giving it to me. And he, and he inscribed it to my guru, David, you know, from, from Anil, to my guru, David, from Anil Gupta. And 
You know, sadly, that's not the first piece of personal art someone has inscribed to me with the term, with the saying, to my guru. And I don't, I, I, man, I'm not trying to be anybody's guru, honestly, but for some reason I've connected with certain people like that. Anyway, long story short, this week I had a call and it was Anil's wife who left me a message saying, you know, Anil's been talking about you a lot lately. And she said, I, I'm going to take it upon myself to make sure that you two guys get together and spend some time together. He's like, she said, cause he's like constantly bringing you up. Um, I spoke to him like six, seven months ago and, you know, we keep making plans. Oh, we got to get together. And then, you know, life gets in the way and stuff happens. But Anil is a guy who I've only ever really spent time with once. And we've just remained somehow tightly connected throughout these years. And it's this this idea of personal relationships. You know, we talk on this show about so many esoteric topics and we talk about all of these things that, you know, just defy rational explanations and so forth. At the same time, you know, this theme that winds through our lives is the fact that we are not islands. We are we are connected to each other in a whole variety of ways, and some ways that are more obvious than others. And people tend to lose sight of those connections when discussing these topics. And, and I'm really happy that today we have the return of someone who's been on our show a couple of times before, Bud Hopkins, who is you know really primarily known, obviously, for his work in abduction, the abduction scenario. And he's, he's infamous for that. But it turns out that Bud is all about the personal connections. And Bud's life is one where if he never got involved with the area of UFO research, his life would still be incredibly full. So what we're going to do today, Gene, is we're going to have a talk with Bud where obviously we're going to talk about things like his research work. But like I said, this is a man who has a lot of really interesting stories of relationships woven through his life. And so we're going to talk to him about all of the topics that he discusses in his most recent book, Art, Life, and UFOs. But this is, and I want to you know, sort of warn our audience, this is not just about Bud's work in the world of UFO and abduction research. This is about Bud's life. And the man has had an amazing life, and we're going to talk all about it today. The Life and Times of Bud Hopkins, next on the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Hi, this is Michelle from Namecheap. We don't have millions of dollars to get race car drivers or models to endorse us, but we will do everything we can to make those who buy domains or web hosting from us as happy as possible. We offer a free SSL as well as free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers or troublemakers. We won't bug you with obnoxious upsells when you check out or in your inbox. But most importantly, our customer service team really cares about you. It's what we pride ourselves in the most because it's your endorsement that means the most to us. If you like what you hear, get deals on both our domains and our web hosting at radio.namecheap.com, radio.namecheap.com, and be sure to play our contest by following us on Twitter. Thanks, Michelle. And by the way, listeners, please use the coupon code Radio Day, that's Radio Day, one word, for special discounts at Namecheap. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. 
tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're thrilled to have Bud Hopkins back on the Paracast with us today. And um, Bud, I have read your book, your latest book, Art, Life, and UFOs, a memoir. And, and I have to just say, it's a fantastic read uh, for all the reasons that you want an autobiographical book to be good. But something occurred to me when I first started reading it, in that in the title, you, you position the topics, art, life, and UFOs, in that order. And I was trying to figure out whether you were just being alphabetical or you were prioritizing uh, these things in terms of the importance to your, to your life from your point of view. Why that order? Well, it, uh, it was only that it sounded best. In other words, it's done for literary reasons, so, so to speak. Uh, UFOs, art, and life seemed awkward. <laughs> and <laughs> art just had a nice beginning uh, sound to it, so it doesn't have any real significance. I really want, I mean, obviously, my life is the more important aspect of the whole, most important of the three, simply because it's my whole life from the beginning to relatively close to the end now. So uh, I, it wasn't done in terms of importance. It was just done for, for um, the way it sounded. It rolled off the tongue well. It did. Uh, well, at least better than the other ways. <laughs> but now, reading the book, it's pretty clear that in your life, the one theme that's run underneath of, the, of all of your life is, is art. I mean, from mm -hmm. the earliest parts of the book, um, you, you describe your passion about drawing, mm -hmm. and uh, and and that's something that personally I can really relate to. And in fact, I have to tell you, in reading that the early part of the book, I was quite taken with the similarities um, in terms of the fascination with the little toy soldiers and the mm -hmm. fascination with drawing, because I absolutely shared those two fascinations at around the same age. So, mm -hmm. I mean. How is it that you, you, you can come to this point where you're thinking about, you know, war and art? How are those two things linked? Well, <laughs> are they? Uh, I mean, one of the things, of course, is that, is that you don't choose uh, the order in which things occur in your life. And um, obviously, uh, December 7th, 1941 was not something I chose. To, uh, to occur, which uh, brought up all of the issues of the toy soldiers and war and so forth. Mm -hmm. And uh, that meant that I began drawing uh, Messerschmitts and uh, Spitfires and so forth. Uh, so I don't think that there's any significance really in, in the order in which some of these things occurred. The business about art being a, a theme in my life, it's such, it certainly is because uh, as a matter of fact, about uh, 15 minutes ago, I left my studio uh, downstairs and came up to to take the phone call. So I'm still working, and of course, I started uh, drawing and making little crummy things when I was about three. So uh, it's been a continuous thing, and the UFO subject, of course, didn't pop into my life with uh, absolute certainty until 1975 when I was... What was I, 40, 44 years old? Which is really kind of intense in that um, while that became a solid part of your life at that age, uh, the interest had obviously started years earlier with the UFO sighting. Um, yes. And, and we'll, get, we'll get back to that in a moment. And, and, and again, in reading the book, 
um, you have this really interesting description of uh, the night that the uh, Orson Welles War of the Worlds show aired. And I wonder if you would recount that story for us here. Right. Well, the the story is that I and I had never really made this public uh, about my uh, being a witness to the whole thing uh, until this book. But I was uh, it was 1938, so I was seven. I was in bed and uh, I heard uh, the phone ringing, which is unusual, in my uh, parents' bedroom, and I heard these sort of uh, slowly rising voices of my father and then my mother. Uh, being extremely upset, and I knew something bad was happening, and I heard finally somebody say something about uh, invasion or end of the world or whatever, and my parents, and I was, of course, terrified. My parents came into my bedroom uh, because my father wanted to look out the window, uh, which faced a different direction than the bedroom window, to see if he could see anything going on in the sky. And uh, there was incredible weeping from my mother, who was in a state of panic, and, of course, weeping from me. When my mother came in, I, I remember asking in this very tiny, frightened voice, are we all going to die? And uh, I didn't understand what was happening. My father switched on the radio in the uh, bedroom there. This is a different radio. And... Um, began scanning the skies, looking out the window. At any rate, my parents were getting more and more terrified. My father was trying to remain calm, but he didn't sound calm. And um, so uh, I, I had no idea what was happening, but I heard something about uh, the Martians. And I was listening to the radio then, along with my parents, and I was hearing this really terrifying broadcast, uh, which didn't sound like any broadcast I had ever heard. So the basic point about all this was there was such fear as a result of this. And my, finally it emerged that uh, my father said something about to my mother about a phone call he'd gotten from an employee of his, Mr. Buck. And Mr. Buck was uh, asking my father uh, to join him by putting guns in the car and, and packing up the children and, and food and water and going up to this tall hill nearby to make a stand. I mean, that, that was really the level at which people were acting as a result of this. And uh, my father declined to join Mr. Buck, thank God. But the point is, uh, when the program finally revealed itself as just a program, there was this fury on the part of my father as there was across the country from just millions of people. But the, my point, ultimately, in, in terms of the great swath of the whole UFO issue, is that what this program did was to set up the idea that any report that sounded like Martians invading, so to speak, was obviously also a hoax. And I said that Orson Welles had sort of inoculated the the uh, population of the United States against taking UFO reports seriously. It set back the whole idea of thinking about it. Do you really think the repercussions of that rippled through time in a way where that single broadcast bud poisoned the pool? Uh, really? I do. And, and the reason I do is people still, especially aged people, still refer to, oh, that's just a Dorsen Wells thing, you know, when they hear about UFOs. Uh, and I just think that it, it set people up to have a, an automatic uh, way of dumping the whole idea of these reports by saying, oh, it's just another one of those things, you know, and, and 
uh, I think it did have a big effect. I, I, there's no way of measuring uh, in a uh, sociologically accurate way exactly what that effect was, but I think it was a very large effect. How did it color your own view? And Or do you think, I mean, if that's true, Bud, um, do you think potentially it had an influence on your own view of the UFO and abduction scenario later in life? Because, I mean, one could almost take from that that it set up in you this idea that there was a negative dynamic at play, um, which uh, is obviously a recurring theme in, in your research work, right? Uh, yeah, but that, well, the, the idea of a, a negative you know, reaction because of the, diff, the pain, the psychological scarring that these uh, experiences had, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that really came from the data it's, uh, themselves. I don't think that the Orson Welles broadcast had anything to do with that, uh, because it was, in terms of what was going on in the broadcast, it was so over the top. I mean, uh, ray guns and people, people's planes blowing up and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was so science fiction-y, you know, in retrospect. But I think that uh, what it did in terms of my own thinking was it, it just was probably set up some sort of uh, unconscious shield against hearing anything about the whole subject. And I paid absolutely no attention to it, but absolutely no attention until I had that sighting in 1964. So let's jump right to that. And, and obviously there's a bunch of stuff in between that I know we'll revisit. But um, this sighting you had in 1964... It was something where it wasn't just you, it was you and a couple of other people, which, um, you know, when we talk with people about their personal experiences, shared personal experiences definitely have a weight and a veracity that uh, solo experiences just don't. So this was an experience you shared with two other people. Um, And in fact, as it turns out, after the experience, based on your account in the book, you found out that a whole other group of people close to you had also, unbeknownst to you, had a series of sightings as well. So could you elaborate upon that, please? Uh, yes. Well, when I had the sighting, which was a daytime uh, sighting, uh, daytime disc in Alan Hynek's, uh, uh classification system, in 1964, I was with my wife and an English friend who was visiting us uh, and five-something in the afternoon. At any rate, we... We saw this and started wondering what what it was, and I began slowing down so we could look up. And, and you were driving, so let's just we were set driving, that up. Yeah, right. uh, exactly. Okay. And on our way to Provincetown from uh, Truro. And uh, finally, uh, when we were looking up at it from a, uh, at, a, at a steeper angle, when we got into the lower ground, you could see that it was circular from underneath, but from the higher ground, it was sort of lens shaped and silhouette. And uh, going very slowly and discussing it in a way, suddenly the thing shot off. And uh, we watched it uh, fly quickly into the clouds. Now, one of the things is uh, I was going very slowly, and I've later taken that same stretch uh, to see how long the sighting probably lasted, which was between, uh, say, two and three minutes. It's a fairly long sighting. And... uh, it was only after the thing had flown away and we jumped out of the car to look at it uh, that uh, we began discussing, gee, was that a UFO or a flying saucer? I don't think we had the term UFO uh, in 64 that we were using. And uh, then when we went on to the party that we were headed for, and 
began telling friends rather excitedly about what we'd seen. Uh, that's when I got reports from other people who had had similar experiences over the years, sightings and so forth, and that made me feel uh, there was a sort, the sort of weight of other witnesses uh, to the similar to similar uh, phenomena. And what you said about how it gives you more feeling of uh, self-credibility when there were other people who witnessed it, in this case, uh, my wife and friend in the car. What's very interesting about that comment is when something just happens to you and there's nobody else around and there's no other witness or anything, it is so easy to doubt your own sanity or clarity of vision, whatever it is, mm -hmm. and in a certain sense turn the whole experience around against yourself, which ha has happened so many times, uh, especially in abduction cases, when it has been a, a single witness. Yeah, the basic thing is, I must be crazy. This is just impossible. Or I must be having some sort of hallucination or vision. But in a situation like the one I've described in 1964, those thoughts just simply weren't present for anybody. Well, I, I, one could certainly write that off to sort of a coping mechanism, right? I mean, if it just happens to you, um, and if it's too weird to try to rationalize, then thinking, okay, I, I'm not going to trust my senses because my senses can fail me. That ends up just being sort of a defense mechanism, right? Absolutely. And, and uh, what's extremely important about this is that when you get to the abduction phenomenon, just away from the issue of just uh, a casual sighting, like my experience, but when you get to an abduction experience, and I've worked with so many people where this has been true, things that, that start uh, abductions in childhood, and whatever percentage is, is recalled consciously, and I think with young children, a lot of it is recalled for some reason. The mechanisms of, of blocking uh, the conscious recall don't seem to be in place if the child is three or four or five or whatever. But when things happen at that age and a child tells the parents, they're immediately discounted. Oh, you just had a bad dream or you have a vivid imagination or something. So the child is getting a sort of double whammy. The experience itself seems unbelievable. And then parents are telling that child that, uh, no, this is something that's the matter with you. It didn't really happen. And so uh, what moves from a coping mechanism is actually psychological damaging because the person ends up with uh, a lack of self-confidence. Uh, it does all kinds of things for self-esteem and so on. And uh, these are conditions which I see with virtually all abductees I work with. Business travel is a profitability killer, you know that. So do more and travel less with GoToMeeting, the easiest, most affordable online meeting service. With just a click, launch sales presentations, training sessions, product demos, or collaborative sessions right from your desk. GoToMeeting is so easy to set up and use, you'll have your first meeting running in seconds. Plus, hold as many meetings as you want for one flat rate. Free VOIP and phone conferencing included. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. 
That's www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We have Bud Hopkins, and he's talking to us about his life and his times. And he has a new memoir out called Art, Life, and UFOs, not necessarily in that order. So what do you think about that? Do you think that people who are abducted are blaming themselves, Bud? Uh, yes, absolutely. And uh, that's not in every single case. The, the wonderful thing is, is when that, uh, the lucky thing in this weird context is if the parent has also had abduction experiences, which is often the case, and they have... Uh, sort of begun to de- deal with them and understand them and recall them, then that parent can tell the child, yes, I know what you're talking about. I had these things happen to me, too, when I was your age, and it's very frightening, very scary, but I'm okay, and you're going to be okay, too. Uh, so the child doesn't go through that kind of self-blame. But if the parent is still, let's say, has either not had the experiences or is in denial, and that parent is telling the child, uh, you know, this did not happen. Then the self-blame is very intense. You know, it's, it's interesting that we're, we're going down this particular path, but um, we just, and, and Gene, I, I think you probably got this email as well. We just got, um, just in recent days, a piece of email from one of our listeners uh, who actually wrote in uh, responding to the last episode we had with you and uh, David Jacobs. He, uh, I guess it's a he, I'm assuming that that uh, this person wrote in and, and, and was specifically addressing the issue of stopping abductions. And um, this person uh, relates that they're an abductee and that they had had success in essentially commanding, quote-unquote, commanding the abductors to leave. And he says, uh, not, not asking, pleading, or hoping, but making a demand. He says, I had to practice saying no and meaning it so and so thoroughly embed this in my consciousness that it would be automatic when they come for me. And the other uh, sort of reflectionist person shared was that they felt that uh, uh, there was a good possibility that a large number of the abductions had occurred to people who had been either abused as children or who had suffered through Severe, severe illness or, or hospital surgery. So in your own research, does that jive up with what this uh, listener has written in with? Well, in answer to your question, does this uh, uh, seem to fit with uh, the accounts I've gotten? Uh, I, first, let's take the, the abuse, physical, sexual, whatever, right. verbal. Uh, I, I don't think that that uh, has ever really come up as any sort of major figure in in the phenomenon. Many, many people uh, have reported that their parents were very loving, very supportive, and very few talk about abusive situations, although some do. It does come up, but I think it would in in any percentage of the population. So I just don't think statistically that's a factor. Uh, So uh, the second thing, well, the most important thing is whether that works, whether you can just be 
uh, tough and so on. The problem with that is I, there's no way to know uh, easily right now from the distance whether or not, in fact, the abduction did take place and the person was made to feel that, it, uh, that he or she had won. I don't right. really know. But there's so much ability to control uh, recollections and uh, even emotions and so forth that it's, it's hard to know whether that works. But I would suggest anybody who feels it will work, use it, please. Give it a shot. Well, and and certainly there's been you know some some writing about the topic of people uh, evoking the name of Jesus to stop this stuff, and, and obviously we've had some real um, concerns about some of those claims. I mean, at that point, it starts to sound not very feasible. Uh, what what are your thoughts about that? I mean, if so much of this is wrapped up in our perceptions of. Mm-hmm. Does altering our perceptions of it then alter the the phenomenon? I mean, what? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, I, I think the the phenomenon is so uh, let's say hard edged, meaning it, it, it is so insistent and apparently uh, has such psychological power mm-hmm. over people. I think that uh, that's the thing that comes first, and the person's recollections later and perceptions are the more malleable uh, aspects of the phenomenon. Uh, I had a, uh, I mean, there was a case once where somebody believed that, maybe they did, of course, uh, when they were lying on the table in in UFO abduction, uh, asked the aliens, uh, do you know God or something, whatever, something like this, Hmm. and got the immediate response, we come from God, uh, which is, which reminds me, of course, of Carl Higdon, who was hunting and was abducted, he was hunting elk, and uh, he was able to ask them, again, telepathically, why are you here? And they, the answer was, we've come here to hunt and fish, and Higdon was immediately aware that that made absolutely no sense, but that he was being fed uh, an answer that was expected, which would probably, I guess, the, on the aliens' part, think that he would be a little calmer, easier to manage if he believed something like that. <laughs> so it's, these things are very hard to tell. Now, uh, one story I, I should tell is that um, I once worked with a, uh, a woman and her two daughters, all of whom had been abducted, and I was dealing with them the week after, the week of the incident, so Michigan case, and the point is they were all three born-again Christians, and uh, the one daughter who I talked to, and this had nothing to do with hypnosis, any of it, but they all recalled interlocking memories of the experience the night before. This one girl who was extremely bright, and she was, I would say, about uh, 13, she was determined, she was very religious, that she was going to be a missionary. But this experience more or less shattered her faith. And she said to me when we were talking, of course, there was no hypnosis or anything involved. When she was talking, she said that when she was lying on the table and couldn't move and they were doing, you know, shall we say God knows what, uh, to her, uh, some sort of probably genital exploration of some sort, uh, reproductive thing, she said she was praying for God to save her and take her off the table and he didn't and she had lost her faith and I found myself in the position of trying to restore her faith which I realized was a huge necessity and prop in her life and I said well tell me the truth now have you ever 
prayed before for anything uh, that God, uh, in situations where God did not answer your prayers. And she said, well, yes, that did happen before. And I said, well, maybe this is one of those times. Maybe you're hmm. being tested in some way and God let this happen. And I found myself <laughs> uh, in a pastoral role with this young woman because... Uh, young girl because uh, she needed to have her faith reinstalled. Well, do you think then that somebody who wanted to criticize your research potentially would take that as a, a statement of you not being an appropriate researcher at that moment? I mean, how do you ultimately, I guess that begs the, the larger question, but how do you reconcile this work with your, your own belief systems? Um, is there well, a hard line of separation? You mean uh, belief system in in the uh, cosmological sense, I guess, in yeah, religious yeah. sense. Uh, sure. Oh, uh, uh, see, I don't see a problem there. If it, if I have made the judgment, uh, which is a therapeutic judgment, that this girl has her uh, her reality has been shattered two ways. One by this intrusion of these sort of ungodlike, whatever the hell they are, beings, and the fact that her prayers weren't answered. And uh, my therapeutic idea was to try to pick up the pieces and put them together again for her. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that uh, there are countless, countless times therapists have gone outside their own particular religious point of view or whatever to try to help somebody for whom they judged their faith was uh, an extremely important part of their life to do something to to at least restore that back to the position it once held. I just think that it's in a certain sense it's it's proper therapy to do that regardless of what your religious beliefs are. I mean, imagine the the opposite that somebody comes in. Well, we don't have to even go into that. But the point is, as far as I'm concerned. As religion gets into this, uh, I think we we have to look at the whole thing in, in, on the most human scale. What's the best thing at that moment for that person? And this girl being 13 and having been shattered uh, by her experiences, I thought to restore the status quo was the best thing I could do. Hmm. You know, when we talk about these subjects and when you see the mainstream uh, discuss this topic, so often... It's framed in the context of being all about belief systems. And this is something that, you know, looking lately at some of the, and I don't really, I didn't intend to bring them up, but let's just go ahead and do it anyway. Um, There's been some of the stuff coming out of the exopolitical camp that uh, I know we probably share some feelings about here, bud, but some of the, the I mean, it's it's just craziness coming out of them lately. has just been sort of so extreme and where they're trying to claim some sort of sense of credibility and 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 reason and yet just in the last few weeks or a couple of months there's been a bunch of stuff about Mars teleportation and uh, the idea that uh, there's been this covert operation going on with humans interacting with Martians and teleporting to secret bases on Mars since like the 50s and, you know, you hear this stuff or the mainstream certainly picks up on it and goes, well, OK, here here's another crazy belief system and and uses that basically to marginalize the whole topic. I mean, basically, it all just gets whitewashed with one one big brush. Um, do you think that 
the element of faith that's involved with so much of the topic will end up being its undoing in terms of trying to have rational discussions about it? Well, uh, I, I certainly agree with you about the enormous uh, degree of problem here that we, that we have with, with this. I mean, uh, some of the uh, exopolitics stuff about there being this advanced uh, underground culture in Mars and, uh, as you say, teleportation, communication, back and forth. I mean, it's what this is essentially to me is, is it's putting us back into the 50s in the era of uh, the contactees who, uh, in that great story of Dave Jacobs, they were able, one guy was able to sell little packets of dog hairs for five dollars uh dog hairs uh, from a, a venusian dog that he had gotten when he w- went to see him see him on venus the level of of uh, credulousness and the level of uh whatever is motivating people to invent these uh these wild stories whether or not uh these people are, are completely rational or whether this is uh, well, who knows what it is, but at any rate, uh, I think it's putting us back into the same situation that a number of serious researchers, and Alan Hynek and others, Richard Hall, uh, were in in the 1950s, uh, because the whole thing, as you say, was marginalized by the mainstream. Oh, mm-hmm. this is nothing but sci-fi that crap, you know. And, uh, of course, this degree of uh, the exopolitics, Martian stuff, and all kinds of other stuff we've been reading. There's a, a defrock psychologist uh, who uh, uh, has been sending out blogs about uh, his experiences. He, he's an ambassador from the alien nations to the Earth. And we should pay attention. We've got uh, to pay attention to those aliens. You know, that whole thing about exopolitics, but kind of drives us crazy because it's gotten so extreme but that's also mirroring the way our society is now we have so many extremes and we see this in the political world you know we don't want to discuss politics on this show but what did david say you said once you get two people together in a room they start talking suddenly you have politics Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Bud Hopkins, and Bud is the author of a new book about his life, a memoir called Art, 
life and UFOs, and I add to that not necessarily in that order, because many of those things, as you'll hear as we progress, are obviously intertwined. So the nature of extremes, Bud, doesn't that make it really, really hard this day and age to get serious investigations of UFOs and specifically abductions even accomplished? Yes, I, th I think it does. As I say, the, it marginalizes the way serious research was in the 50s in the era of the contactees because this is, in a certain sense, I suppose the exopolitics uh, phenomenon should be rechristened uh, neocontacteeism. Uh, <laughs> a terrible word. <laughs> I like uh, that. Uh, oh, that's no, that's exactly kind of good. What it is. Yeah. Uh, it's it's back to those uh, those crazy days, and when the believers, quote unquote, and they were absolute believers, uh, got together to to, to hear the latest uh, uh, from people who'd made round trips to Venus and sat around uh, beautiful swimming pools with beautiful women and so forth on Venus. Uh, I think we're getting something quite a lot like that now, and uh, I just you know what we have to do is continue doing our solid work uh, and uh, uh, waiting for this thing to self-destruct. Well, how is it self-destruct? Because it seems to me that over the years it's just morphed into something different. So we had the Space Brothers we talked to or got their messages in the 50s, mm -hmm. 60s, 70s. We have exopolitics today where we have to take courses and pay money to get those courses or those lectures to learn how to deal with, of course, the Space Brothers. So how does it self-destruct? Well, I mean, I think it just its own absurdity is, is, is going to do it. And if the Washington Post keeps up its satirical articles whenever they have a meeting in, in Washington, that will help. But uh, let's not forget that people who are making money now are trying to, on these outrageous courses on how to talk to non-existent aliens, that back in the 50s there were people not only selling packets of dog hair from Venus, but um, charging fees for lectures and traveling around the country and so on, making money. And that tradition certainly continues unabated to, to this day with uh, folks like uh, you know, uh, Stephen Greer, who, watching the video of his talk at the exopolitical conference in Spain this summer, was positively painful. Yeah. Just laughable, really. Um, and, and it's funny, Bud, because I'm not a psychologist. I don't think you are. I know Gene's not. I but think yet, people say I need one. That's the point. Yeah, well, that exactly. <laughs> but, I mean, watching Greer's body language and watching his mannerisms during that talk, it struck me that this is a, this is a man with a very severe messiah complex. He, he really is. And, you know, it, it was there was a subsequent uh, video of him being interviewed by Kerry Cassidy of the, the Camelot Nightmare, where it's a battle of the egos. And it was really fascinating in that, uh, and, and I hate to put you on the spot like this, bud, but Kerry was basically taking your position of not all the interactions are positive. So she was, she was speaking from, from that uh, uh, extreme, and Greer basically saying, well, all of the interactions are positive because they're here to help us evolve. And, and to watch these two egos battle it out, it just it seems to me like you've spent a lot of time uh, paddling upstream in this because here, here in the book you talk about how um, you, you had your work doing research into abductions playing out concurrently and simultaneously with your work as an artist. And it obviously couldn't have made things easy on either side, having a life 
that included uh, a bigger picture outside of, of the field. And I think Gene and I can really relate to that, Bud, in that we're, we both work in technology. Mm-hmm. And, you know, getting dragged into this, and now when you, you go and do a Google search on either of our names, uh, you know, you'll find references to uh, our professional work right there with interest in, in these topics on the same mm-hmm. Google hit page. How did this uh, ultimately, how did getting involved in this stuff end up affecting your life as an artist? Well, I think you absolutely have to marginalize as much as you can in your mind these marginal figures like uh, Greer and and uh, so many others uh, whose names I won't even dignify by mentioning. Right, uh, they you. have to be marginalized in your own mind. Like I'm not just not going to bother with these people. It it, it would be you know <laughs> this is talk about messiah complexes. I'm not trying to <laughs> make an analogy, but it would be just Obama. We're going to have to deal with uh, these screamers at at uh, the uh, town hall meetings every time somebody opens his yap or somebody like uh, Rush Limbaugh. I, I'm not trying to make this political uh, political <laughs> to veer into this, but the basic point is that he should not have to pay any attention to the Rush Limbaughs of the world. Uh, the, these marginal figures in terms of the polity of the nation. Well, the problem and is I also, think, but if I may just kind of interject mm-hmm. here, the problem is here is that he is made, person like Rush Limbaugh, he's mm-hmm. made important because the Republican Party makes him important. You know, so if he says something and the party head says something else, and the next day he apologizes because Rush mm-hmm. said it, you know, yeah. if you think about this, you have... A major political party, one of the two political parties in this country, and one is listening to a talk show host, an right. entertainer. Well, I, I think that, uh, that if his uh, views are being moused by Republican leaders in Congress, as they are, uh, of course, Obama's administration has every right to answer them those elected officials but uh let's never forget that uh, uh rush limbaugh has always described himself as an entertainer he entertains uh, the right wing uh, gets some juicy tidbits so uh and i think that in a certain sense if you get back to the politicians i think they are also entertainers for the most part you hear the latest uh, what about what's going on in this underground civilization on mars uh, where can you hear that? What do you only hear about it from them? <laughs> or a prediction about when uh, quote-unquote disclosure is about to happen, predictions which have been uh, shown to be false for 30, 40 years. So I think, you know, what I have done, and, and I'm sure you and Gene have too, is when we're dealing with a subject, we deal with it uh, objectively and on its own terms. And then we go home and do our regular work, uh, our day job, or however this works out. I don't know which is the day job, which is the <laughs> night job. But exactly. the point is we go home, and, and for me, plunging into uh, my painting, I'm in a world that I'm creating that I have complete control over, which gives me enormous pleasure, and which, of course, is a source of income, too. Uh, so all those things are important. I think some of these... Uh, Messianic types have no other source of income or no other aspect of their lives except uh, coming up with more sci-fi stuff. Well, yeah, that's a question, by the way, that you had mentioned about Stephen Bassett, David. 
that basically right. before he got involved in paradigm research and these annual conventions, his background basically didn't exist. Yeah, just completely shrouded in, in, in secrecy. I mean, basically, we don't know anything about the men. And, right. you know, but the, the thing is, reading Our Life in UFOs, what becomes crystal clear is that before you ever got near any of this stuff, you, you had a very full, very interesting life with pretty significant degrees of attention being paid to you in your work. So, you know, I, it doesn't seem to me like anybody could ever try to claim that you got involved with UFO research because you were looking for visibility and attention. I mean, that just doesn't, it doesn't hold true. Right. And it's also a reason why we shouldn't be wasting precious airtime talking about them. Well, yeah. No. So let's talk about, let's talk about the art in your, in your life, because, you know, like you just said, you, you, Basically, in in your art, you have a world which is where you have control over what's going on. You know, in dealing with a topic like the this topic, the topic of the the unknown, it seems like you're setting a kind of a polarity up in your own life, where here you are in a place where you have precious little control, trying to uncover some truths. And it's almost as if, ultimately, your artwork ends up being a counterbalance to that, where you can turn to that and sort of work out frustrations that you might encounter in doing research work, work them out in executing your artwork, where the only unknowns are the ones that maybe you'd want to portray to people looking at your art. So how has your art changed over the years with relation to your interest and some of the insights that you've gleaned through your research into the abduction phenomenon. Well, I think the work has changed, of course, in, in many ways. It, it always changes anyway, uh, just organically as it develops and grows, mm -hmm. uh, whether you're involved in UFO research or not. But the point is that, I mean, it, it, it evolved and changed quite a lot before I got involved in 1975 when I got really involved in uh, the UFO research issue. But the thing is, to go into how it's changed exactly is, is difficult to do without images to point to in uh, a slide in a dark room with a pointer saying, this, this is what I did, this is the way the work changed. One thing I can mention that's specific, and I put a reproduction in the book to illustrate this, is that after the middle 60s, when I had that experience sighting, I think unconsciously one of the factors that entered into my work was the desire for uh, a kind of controlling uh, order, a kind of hierarchy. And that hierarchy, interestingly enough, included a, a large circle as a central controlling image in the picture. Uh, now, I never thought of that as having anything to do with UFOs whatsoever. But uh, and I, you know, knocked down any time somebody said, "Well, you got a circle there. What is that?" Uh, it was just a shape. I had used circles rarely, but a couple times much earlier. And I said, "Well, this is just a, a development in my work. I wanted to make it more classical and less uh, on the expressionist, more emotional, uncontrolled side." And this was a controlling form which the other forms in the painting had to conform to. But what happened was um, the um, uh, actor uh, Maximilian Schell bought a number of paints of mine, and uh, this is in the late uh, 60s, uh, 67, 68, 
and uh, mentioned the similarity he felt between some of the imagery in my paintings and the film 2001, the Stanley Kubrick movie. And I said, oh, that's ridiculous. I went to see the movie with uh, Joan, my wife, and neither one of us thought there was any connection whatsoever. But in retrospect, uh, maybe he saw something I hadn't seen. So that's the, that's the only way I want to mention uh, a, a direct connection between the UFO phenomenon, possibly, and the way my work has gone. Well, I'm looking at the image in the book, bud. It's on page 189, uh, uh, Sun Black 1. Sun Black, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sun Black. Um, and, uh, you know, you've got this very predominant, uh, very opaque black sphere right in the center, and it's as if it were the sort of gravitational center of force of the painting. Right. And I wonder if Maximilian wasn't referring to that scene in 2001 where you see the sun behind the monolith, where it also seems like the sun is sort of the gravitational center of that film frame. You know, well, I, I can, that, yeah, that's an interesting idea, but I, I don't know. I, I, I'd have to see the movie again. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I didn't like the movie very much, to tell you the truth. I, I thought it was uh, sort of cold, and uh, as I think often... Uh, Kubrick's movies were. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a warm Kubrick film. I I don't think there is such a thing, certainly. No. It conveyed Um, to me the impression of being cold and detached and difficult for me to get involved in it. But then when I think of the other part of it is, gee, it's 2009, and we haven't gone anywhere near, in terms of space travel, where that movie projected a couple of decades ago, and that's very unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's quite true. Well, you know, sci-fi, science fiction, science fiction, and I've never been interested in the subject and uh, never read any science fiction. I, I finally forced myself to read a couple of books just to get an idea of it, but it's never appealed to me. Uh, so uh, I don't know what to say about it except that it was just a movie, and I don't think it had anything to do with my work. Well, it's not. A, it wasn't a documentary. I think people so often get confused with the yeah. nature of what movies are that they're supposed to always represent, even abstractly, some reality. And very often, a movie is a movie as a movie. To paraphrase right. Richard Stein, you know that brings us to the, the idea of uh, abstract expressionism. Not to sort of uh, create a tenuous link there, but you know, but uh, there was a conversation I had with you. I was actually visiting you, mm. and. Uh, I said something, and I'll relive this on air because, uh, uh, in hindsight, I was sort of mortified when it happened. So I'll get your reaction now after the fact, where I made some derogatory comment about Jackson Pollock, um, <laughs> not, not not realizing that you had had a history with the man. And I said something to you about Pollock, which was not very positive. And then I saw over on your shelf a whole section of Pollock books, and I thought, oh, man, if I put my foot in my mouth now. I'll tell you what, David, before we put anybody's feet anywhere, or to the fire, which is another place that sometimes feet may go, we are just about done with our number one, which has gone by so fast I barely noticed it. And we'll be returning with more discussions with Bud Hopkins. He's talking about his life, his memoir, Art, Life, and UFOs. More to come on the other side of the Paracast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. 
And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. We're back with Bud Hopkins talking about his memoir, Art, Life, and UFOs, and about life all around us. David, you started a conversation which maybe we should pick up on the air as we took our break. Yeah, so here, here's Bud who has this whole other reality separate from abduction research. A reality I think is in many ways almost really more fascinating, um, which is that he had interacted for years, had been part of the abstract expressionist art movement. And in the book, there are these fascinating stories about uh, being part of that world and uh, the experiences and the anecdotes about uh, some of the, the real behavior, some of these people who were in many ways, you know, obviously very legendary, but who showed their human foibles all too obviously. And, you know, but what, what I alluded to before the break was that I'd always had very odd feelings about Jackson Pollock and uh, then find out that you knew the man. And at first I was sort of mortified when I brought up that I, I really didn't find much interest in his art, but then actually almost felt some vindication reading your book and reading about some of your, your interactions with Pollock where I guess it became clear that this was uh, someone who was really almost far from being likable or, or warm or nice. I mean, you're, you're reading your book, it, it seems like this guy was... Uh, Ooh, not the kind of person I'd want to spend time with. Can you can you perhaps relay some of your experiences with, right. with well, I, One of the things that uh, should always be borne in mind is that when I first met him, it was in the last, uh, uh, we'll say, three years of uh, four years maybe of his life, mm-hmm. and uh, three years of his life. And at that point, he was uh, a shell man compared to what he had apparently once been. Uh, I've been asked by a lot of people if I thought that uh, the movie on Pollock, uh, Ed, Ed Harris, I believe, was mm-hmm. uh, accurate. And I said, well, most of the movie is about the life up until those last few years. So I have no way of knowing. I didn't know him then. But uh, I'm sure he was a very different man. But he was a severe alcoholic. And uh, he was, in a way, emotionally and physically falling apart at the time I knew him. And he was grandstanding every chance he could get uh, to, to maintain uh, the one thing he had, had which was same, uh, even when his work, when he was hardly painting and uh, drinking himself to death. So he was a very unpleasant person to be around. One story which I, I didn't uh, put in the book, but uh, Franz Klein had told me, uh, that he and de Kooning were walking down the street. Now, here are two of the major figures in abstract expressionism. And uh, they ran into Pollock, and Pollock said, let's, let's go in this, let's go have a drink. Natural kind of thing to say. <laughs> it was probably 11 in the morning, you know. <laughs> so they went into a bar, and Franz said it was a bar uh, that, that I didn't know, and de Kooning didn't know. And apparently Pollock didn't know. But it was frequented by apparently mafia types or, or 
you know, underworld people of one sort or another, and there were a few in there. And they walked over to the bar, and Pollock did his usual thing, which was to take his arm and sweep all the glasses off the bar onto the floor, breaking everything, oh. uh, and ordering a drink. And Tom said he noticed these two guys with very big shoulders advancing from behind, <laughs> and lifting Pollock off the ground, and out the door he went. Tom said they went for decooting next, and he went running out after decooting was tossed out of the bar. But the point is, that sort of behavior was... Uh, it's showboating, you know. He, he and the poor guy was was really on his last legs. So I had no idea what he was like at one time, but that was typical of the, of the kind of behavior. That uh, and I have a number of stories in the book, uh, which were of that sort. I mean, I, I had uh, pity for the guy uh, as a person, and um, the thing was, we all avoided him, everybody avoided him because uh, it was always going to be some kind of terrible scene that he would mm. cause and orchestrate but um, at any rate uh, when we heard of his death, I remember this very vividly, I think it was in August of uh, 56, we were shocked suddenly, you know, you couldn't everybody was so real and vivid and around, you couldn't imagine anybody dying, you know and I was a kid at the time. I was, what, 25. And um, then uh, after uh, our feeling this sort of shock, uh, and then you thinking, gee, there'll be no more Pollocks, you know, paintings. Uh, but then I suddenly had this kind of personal feeling of sadness, uh, even though I never had any kind of reason in a personal way to feel warmth towards him. So, it's, it, I mean, the whole thing is very complicated because I think he's a magnificent artist at his best. The show at the Museum of Modern Art was uh, just a knockout show, the retrospective, a few years back. So it's a complicated subject, it really is. I guess all the lives of all artists uh, have their complications. Anybody looking at your life would probably come to the same kind of a conclusion that, you know, here you are expressing yourself visually on one hand and on the other hand sort of having this whole other reality you know plumbing these mysteries in in a way that you know people i, I guess they they would read this book uh, and they would come to the conclusion that you had lived multiple lifetimes in one well you know, it seems that way to me and it's one of the reasons i <laughs> I wrote the book, uh, uh, there's a, a statement at the beginning, an epigraph, epigraph which was uh, by Simone de Beauvoir, and she said something to the effect that when she was young and reading memoirs and collections of letters and so forth, she wanted to find out everything she could about a life which had disappeared, and she had this total dread herself that when she went to sleep at night, Everything she'd seen and felt during the day would disappear, and that's uh, that's kind of the re one of the reasons that that uh, made me want to put it down before it got lost, which is all mm -hmm. of these things. And incidentally, one one thing not to not to return to another subject, but <laughs> just a, a quick stab in in between things: the, the bringing up of, of Greer and the uh, extra politicians and yeah. you know the craziness going on, and and being concerned with it. I remember either Mortsall or, or Lenny Bruce saying, defining a liberal 
as a uh, masochist to buy and read everything a bigot publishes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think there's some kind of (laughs) there's some kind of masochistic thing involved. Although in the field, uh, in your place in the field. Uh, you obviously have to deal with this, but I don't. Uh, I can I can refuse the masochistic experience of, of reading this sort of crap that's put out. Anyway, uh, I just wanted to throw that in because I always thought that was a great practice of whoever. <laughs> That's, a pretty, that, that's pretty funny, um, you know, and it, sound, it sounds like something Lenny would say. Yeah. But, you know, the, the problem being, of course, that one could argue that expressing any public interest in almost any aspect of the, the paranormal is almost, by definition, an act of uh, masochism. I mean, you, you, you end up yeah, almost getting to the point where you can't win, bud. Um, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, there is a, there is a kind of lowering the head and charging a, a brick wall uh, aspect to the whole thing. And incidentally, when you mentioned Lenny Bruce, uh, I didn't mention this in the book, but I had heard him several times in person, and I was just absolutely the ultimate fan. I thought he was absolutely great. And actually went backstage, if you can call it that, at the uh, Village Vanguard just to shake his hand. And he was sitting there with sweat running down his face, looking thoroughly exhausted after a great set. And I just just said to him, I just want to tell you how absolutely terrific that was. And he said, thanks, man, thanks, man. You know, his head lowered, like he, like he was just running out. Yeah. Anyway, I didn't, want, didn't mean to get off on Lenny Bruce, but that's no, no, no. the book. Well, actually, a question was that, during the period before or after his, his infamous legal problems? Uh, I'm guessing it was that before, was, right? Uh, uh, I, that's very hard to say, because uh, I heard him one time after that, mm-hmm. um, after he was enmeshed, and he had to play a theater because he couldn't play at a nightclub. And uh, I heard him then at the urging of all things of Tom Lehrer. I don't know whether you ever... Remember Tom Lehrer's uh, satirical songs, which are very funny. This ages uh, me, I do. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> he was, uh, <laughs> Tom Lehrer was sort of a friend of mine and collected my work and so forth. And he kept insisting I go here with Bruce. But the point is, I, the time I heard him was in 1959, and I'm not sure what stage, but he, he certainly was still able to, to play a nightclub. I went that first time, believe it or not, or second time, with uh, and brought along uh, a, a man teaching uh, law at Columbia, Jack Weinstein, who uh, and his wife, uh, they were absolutely stunned and, and bowled over by and, and unbelievably admiring of Lenny Bruce. But Jack Weinstein has gone, gone on to become a major federal judge in Court in Brooklyn. Anyway, I don't mean to ramble about all this, but uh, when the past comes up, it's it's, it's like lava out of a volcano. There's a person who stops. <laughs> well, let's get some more lava going, though. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, there's another artist in your uh, in your book who uh, I have to just say. I mean, you know, I never. Well, I'll say it again. I never thought that highly of Pollock. On the other hand, Martha, Mark Rothko. I always found something very compelling about his work, and it seemed to me, um, without having known anything about the man's history, uh, that there was some real sadness and darkness 
um, being put into onto the canvas by him. He's someone you you knew a lot better, right? Oh yeah. Well, I yeah. mean, you could sit and have conversations. Not, you didn't do yeah. that with Paul. I could. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and of course, I met Roscoe very early when I first came to New York. I could have met him in '53 or '54, probably '53. But the sadness was, I thought, I think that's uh, uh, present in his, in his paintings. Even when color is bright, it never seems to lift the spirits so much as it it hints at something tragic down inside. And uh, oh, yeah. I think that he, he, he had a, a diff- very difficult life. All of these painters did. I mean, uh, they very few of them had any real support from any source uh, family or anything uh but is that uh, what being a famous painter is all about though in large part that you almost always have a troubled life and maybe you're not really discovered until you're gone well i mean that's that's there's a kind of i would say mess of that because it's far more romantic to think that than to think that somebody actually had a fairly decent life picasso originally came from a very you know, a stable family. His father was an artist and, and uh, supported him, taught him, and so forth. He had trouble financially when he went to Paris the first time, but there's a, a sort of romantic uh, belief system that artists have to have really troubled lives to, to be decent artists or something like that. And I think that that's really uh, refuted by by history. There have, Many artists have had very troubled lives, uh, Van Gogh being one, uh, and of course, people suicidal. And I think the abstract expressionists as a group had had uh, a really difficult time, regardless of what their family background was, because there was no money and no, no uh, collecting, really, and no support for them for many, many years. So they were all kind of down. They all, most all, had drinking problems and so forth. Hi, this is Michelle from Namecheap. We don't have millions of dollars to get race car drivers or models to endorse us, but we will do everything we can to make those who buy domains or web hosting from us as happy as possible. We offer a free SSL as well as free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers or troublemakers. We won't bug you with obnoxious upsells when you check out or in your inbox, but most importantly, our customer service team really cares about you. It's what we pride ourselves in the most because it's your endorsement that means the most to us. If you like what you hear, get deals on both our domains and our web hosting at radio.namecheap.com, radio.namecheap.com, and be sure to play our contest by following us on Twitter. Thanks, Michelle. And by the way, listeners, please use the coupon code RADIODAY, that's RADIODAY, one word, for special discounts at Namecheap. This is Philip Rodno. You're listening to Paracast with Gene and Dick, one of the most informative shows out there. So listen closely. We have Bud Hopkins joining us. He is talking about his life and his experiences, and he has a new book out that tells you more. It's called Art, Life, and UFOs, and it's available now from Amazon Books and the Usual Offenders. David, do you want to pick up on this? Getting back to Rothko for a minute, Bud. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, you make a very good point that it, strife in one's life doesn't necessarily isn't isn't a required element uh, for for being an artist. 
but perhaps it, it, it helps the intensity of the artwork. It's almost as if the intensity of the experiences of the artist translates ultimately into intensity in the art. And, and I, I think of some of the artists who I personally know and am friends with. I mean, one of, uh, one, uh, one of the most talented artists, I think, alive today is, is a close friend of mine who has had an exceedingly difficult life and, and really, except for certain circles, has had nowhere near the amount of recognition he deserves. His name is Paul Mavridis, and there are some listeners of the show who will know exactly who he is because of his involvement with a, a, a satirical religious group called the Church of the Subgenius. And uh, Mavridis, and then that's the name of the organization. It's got a long, colorful history. Mavridis is someone who uh, I worship as an artist, and and the thing about him is that he is a chameleon. He can draw and paint in literally any style that mm-hmm. probably has ever been done, um, in a way that is terrifying. And yet, because he he's not commercial in his work, the last thing he does is commercial art. And it's really worked against him. And it seems like, in the, certainly in the case of the abstract expressionists, you've got a similar kind of a situation going on. These guys were not painting, and, and this includes you, obviously. You were not creating things based on your perception of what people necessarily wanted to hang on their wall. You weren't doing focus group-based art. You were basically expressing yourself. You were doing art with integrity and, you know, so many times, I mean, that's just not necessarily what the market will reward. Exactly. I, I remember once saying to somebody uh, when they were saying that they didn't, uh, they didn't get it, you know, what I was doing or something. And, uh, and they would like something more such and such, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I said, well, you know, in a way, I said, imagine going to uh, a news commentator. And saying, I don't like the news you're bringing here. Give me, I want to get, talk to me about puppies and little uh, boys on ponies, or something like that. And the newsman would look at them like they're crazy. And he says, my job is to present the news, and in a certain sense, an artist's job is to present uh, the whole emotional world which he has discovered and which he wants to, which he's he's expressing. Uh, one time. A children's class came to my studio, uh, my daughter's class, and they're for little little kids. And they were upstairs in the living room looking at I was showing them my paintings, and uh, then they went down to the studio, walking hand in hand as as uh, children do in these classes. And I was behind a little boy and a little girl, and the little boy said to the little girl, "I don't understand what he's doing, or what those things are." And the little girl said, don't you see, he wants to make something that no one's ever seen before. Hmm. Which I thought was, in a way, rather nice. Rather nice and rather insightful. Yep. When you start to analyze Rothko, not to to dwell on Rothko so much, but um, there was something about, there was a statement that uh, uh, I guess he once made um, about, you know, the influences on his art. And obviously... Well, not obviously, but if you research his life, you find that he had a you know, very fearful childhood, um, being in a very rough part of the world, Russia, at a, in a strange time of history. But there's a there's a saying from him that uh, that he believed that the emptiness in people's lives, that their spiritual emptiness, was created partly by the lack of mythology. It makes you wonder, Bud. 
uh, you know, to tie this topic now to the topic of, of the unknown, I mean, is there a cogent argument that the continuing interest in the paranormal on the part of, of all societies, really, is part of a fulfillment of the what see, appears to be a human need for mythology, except transposed into uh, the current world, and 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 you know does does this tell us something about the nature of, for example, how it seems like even the visual components of UFO morphology and and the, the descriptions of beings almost seem to be. Uh, in essence, serving the the purpose of delivering a modern mythology to people who maybe are not getting that urge for mythology satisfied by materialism. If that makes any well, sense. Well, there's there are so many uh, sort of speculative ifs in in what you just presented. Right. That is very hard to take a question like that and give any kind of sensible answer. I, I mean, I really don't know how to deal with something like that um, because as, as far as I'm concerned in relation to the paranormal there's just so many things that happen in the world that are, seem inexplicable to people mm-hmm. the paranormal is always sort of knocking on the door there, there's no way in which somehow or other you can live your life without odd things happening or seeing or hearing about odd things which make you question whether or not um, normal everyday reality is all there is. Yeah. Uh, it, it just verges off into religion, into all mysticism mm-hmm. of all kinds. And I just think it's unavoidable. I don't think it's a necessarily a human need. I think even if you tried to be some cold-blooded rationalist, uh, some damn thing would happen to you someday, and you'd, you'd wonder about <laughs> Well, and, and that closely reflects my own personal experience in life. I mean, you know, this this attempt to be a rationalist and a scientific, yeah. what I consider to be a scientific thinker, and yet uh, having at at different, in many cases, sort of important points in my life, having these experiences that do tend to mess up my worldview and and keep me in a sense of wonder. Absolutely. Well, the uh, the paranormal has been wrapping its knuckles solid on your door. That's the point. Yeah. And uh, you know, you can, it's it's unavoidable. I mean, for instance, for me, when I had the UFO sighting, uh, I had I was living in a fairly tidy little world, and suddenly there was this thing. And what the hell was it? Um, somebody once uh, used a term uh, about their experience that it was like a crack in the universe and uh, this was like a certain, in a certain sense a kind of a crack in my universe my world view and um, therefore I suddenly had to take this into into my, my psyche but, but one of the things that I should make very clear is that the longer I worked in the field uh, working with abductees the more I was focusing not on the UFOs or the UFO occupants or, you know, that end of the equation, but the more I was working with the uh, the abductee himself or herself uh, in a way that, that had inevitably a, a therapeutic aspect to it. Uh, I could I could trust the people and I could react to the people and and what they what they were going through, what their problems were, and so on. But I could not find myself with any interest in 
UFO propulsion systems or, or, or you name it, whatever these things are. I was never interested in the aliens per se, quote unquote, whatever, whoever they are. By focusing on the individuals who, who have gone through these experiences and, and suffered, uh, I felt I could actually be doing some good in the world and helping these people out. And I was learning, of course, uh, secondhand what the phenomenon was all about. In talking to all of these people um, and in reading your, your books about this topic, it seems like um, it's probably accurate to say that one could kind of gauge the veracity of someone's account based on their desire to publicize their experiences. Um, you know, as you get into your into the side of your book, in this this new book that deals with uh, speaking with abductees, it, one thing that strikes me certainly is that um, it appears like the people who ultimately have the most what some, I guess, objective people would say would be, you know, credible experiences are the ones least likely to seek uh, exposure about Absolutely. having had them, right? So then, uh, given that reality, let's 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 bring up a specific name uh, which goes against all of that, in which you have some interesting comments in your book, and that would be Whitley Strieber. Uh, could you tell us about your interactions, a little bit about your, the background of your interactions with, with Whitley so that, um, you know, people can get an idea for who this guy is? Because it's really hard to try to pin him down, it seems, um, yeah. and especially lately. So tell us, please, about your experiences with Whitley. What did you find? Well, this is, uh, for me, an extremely complicated and emotionally fraught uh, subject. Mm -hmm. Because uh, I feel, uh, you know, I felt a, a sense of utter betrayal, uh, an experience I went into in the book, and, and rather not have to repeat, but what's, okay. what's happened, my view of him is that, uh, first, that I think he's definitely had experiences. I mean, that's, if somebody asked me, uh, what, what do you think, one way or the other, uh, I would I would think, yes, he's had experience, UFO abduction experiences. Uh, I never say for a fact somebody, it is a fact that somebody, you know, but I would say that uh, he, when one looks at all the evidence, he has had experiences. But on the other hand, he's somebody who I've, I have always felt was more emotionally unstable than most uh, abductees I worked with and more... Uh, liable to confabulate, to invent, to tell self-aggrandizing stories, all intermixed with genuine recollections to such a point that uh, you have to, in a certain sense, reject the whole business uh, from serious concern. And I don't think that looking at, uh, at a Strieber in, uh, in retrospect that, that he's the kind of person anybody should necessarily take seriously in his pronouncements, mm. uh, despite the fact that he's had real experiences, of course, and that uh, uh, some of the pronouncements uh, might be quite true. So uh, he becomes uh, one of these problems where uh, you're left with really no alternative except to kind of uh, put it away on some shelf in the back and say, we don't really know about Strieber because he's such a strange person and so forth. You put him in the gray uh, box, as we sometimes say. 
Fate magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Hi, this is Nick Pope. You're listening to The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have Bud Hopkins. He's here to talk about his life in connection with a new book, his memoir, Art, Life, and UFOs. We've talked about the art, somewhat about the life. We keep going back and forth with the UFOs and now about Whitley Strieber, of course, our listeners should know that we've made efforts to have Whitley Strieber come here. In fact, we got a letter from him once a couple of years back saying, you know, I'll come on. And then I said, okay, when? And that was the end of the communication. Yeah, well, that's the, the on-again, off-again aspect of the man. I mean, that's, that's why uh, the unpredictability, uh, it, it's, it's a long, complicated story, which is uh, yeah. probably a little boring to <laughs> But uh, w- one thing uh, I-, I would like to, to turn the tables and ask you, uh, both of you, I've been told by uh, some people that, um, uh, like in terms of criticizing my book, uh, somebody said that uh, they uh, found there was too much about my early, uh, and it's not, not much in the book, but my early uh, sexual explorations, that it was too intimate or something. Somebody else said there was too much about the, the, the poor soldiers uh, and, and so forth. There were areas in which, you know, I've, I've gotten criticisms on, on these sorts of things. And I tried to achieve a sort of balance and to try to be honest. But I'm curious how you reacted to some of these issues and whether or not you felt uh, uh, certain things were overdone. Uh, or. Well, uh, I thought they were quite fascinating. Um, and the idea that you spent too much time talking about the toy soldiers, are, are you serious? Did this person read the first 10 pages of the book and then put it down? I mean, that's just preposterous. It, you know, what we have here is a picture, and my, this is my opinion, obviously, but we have a, a, a picture of you as a person. I mean, we learn about who you are in order to understand you know the qualification of your opinions, uh, the nature of some of your uh, subjectivity. Uh, I think that's incredibly valuable. I think that the, the, you know that the problem is that the person picked up the book, uh, Bud, and uh, saw the art and the UFOs and kind of ignored the whole life topic. Mm-hmm. And the amount of time spent on uh, your sexual experiences. Uh, it was pretty minimal. I mean, forget the fact that, hey, you know, sex sells everything. Uh, we'll, we'll just toss that aside for a moment. I thought the chapter where you dealt with, um, I mean, it's a whole, and we'll just say right here, right now, there's a chapter in the book where you talk about your interactions with uh, th- this reality that was happening in uh, New York in the 50s. It was actually probably happening all over the world in the 50s, but the whole closeted nature 
of some of the, the powerful people in society living these double lives. I, I found that highly compelling, um, you know, and in the context of describing your experiences uh, with having this commercial reality with your art, where you were trying to earn a living with your art, and you were running into these people who maybe had hidden agendas, I, I think the idea of understanding that people have hidden agendas in all walks of life, I think it helps us understand the nature of reality. And, uh, and certainly in the nature of your reality, these things play a very important role. So this idea that somehow you spent too much time, I mean, I think that's, personally, I think that's preposterous. Well, I think that, you know, there are people who are going to say, I wish that it was the whole book was about the UFO subject or something like that, or about art, but, uh, the, you know, the, this, this thing that, uh, of wanting to make clear, uh, really, uh, the, the complexity of one life was mm-hmm. something that drove me to write the book in the first place. So, uh, I, I know that your obsession with toy soldiers, which I think is, uh, terribly neurotic, whereas mine is very <laughs> rational. Um, I see. That, uh, <laughs> I haven't even talked about my interest in that. How are you coming to a judgment? Uh, terribly neurotic? No, that would be my obsession with electric guitars, man. That was terribly neurotic. And, and okay. by the way, it continues to be. I haven't played with toy soldiers in a long time, but uh, I still have a lifelong passion for electric guitars and things with knobs on them. So <laughs> take the things with knobs. And David, I'm not going will. to even want yeah. to approach that. Yeah. Oh, man, I love knobs. Knobs rock. I love knobs. They twist and they turn and they do things when you pull and push them. Yeah, no, I mean, look, and, 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 but this is the thing, you know, we started before we actually called you, uh, we started this episode with a little preamble where I talk about a, a someone, uh, an art, a tattoo artist who I deeply respect, uh, who has been sort of intertwined with my life over the last, like, you know, seven, eight, nine years, and uh, who I just reconnected with. His wife called me and said, you know, he talks about you all the time. When are you guys just going to get together and hang out? One of the things I think that the you make very clear with this book, like I said before, you've had a full life and it, it's a life that um, goes far beyond your interest in this one topic that people are likely to pick up the book for. I think in, in this time of cartoon characters in the media, um, these people with basically hidden pasts, I think it's really important to know that you're someone who has had a rich, full life experience. I think it makes you in my opinion, more credible, uh, easier to relate to, more of a real human being with with the kinds of, uh, 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 you know, flaws and idiosyncrasies uh, that humans should have. And, and not to bring up Stephen Greer again, but <laughs> no, because, you know, the stories that that guy tells about his childhood are just nonsensical. They're just they're just ridiculous. And 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 again, I think it helps paint the picture of his credibility now. Um, okay. Where you know, in reading your stories, I mean, I it doesn't sound to me, having read your book and really loved your book, um, it doesn't sound to me like you've elaborated significantly in any of your stories. Uh, quite the contrary, I think that uh, there are aspects of your reality that you're very discreet about and that you play down. And actually, you know, there's some connotations you make about your sexual proclivities in life that I think are, are, are veiled and, and they're not explicit. And for someone to 
parse those as being explicit, I think that's some kind of weird puritanical BS. And, uh, you know, and, and, it, and it, 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 it belongs, I guess that's part of our society. I mean, it just plays out that way. Um, but, you know, it, it's like, find me the person, you know, find me the, the human who has never masturbated. I'll, I'll show you a cartoon character. You know, give me a break. I mean, what is this? It, and this is where we, we try to place ourselves outside of nature. Right. I well, I try, just, yeah. I try to be discreet to some extent. I didn't go into my uh, years-long torrid affair with Madonna. I've left that out. But uh, Really? Wait, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. But now, <laughs> on the other hand, oh, jeez. Oh. Well, that's, that's a separate book. Watch out. I think Madonna's lawyers are on the phone. <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> At any rate, the, the, uh, you, you know, one of the things is uh, that ha having reached the age of, God forbid, 78, two years short of, of 80, it's really a scary prospect. But the point is, having lived that long a time and having lived through some very, very dramatic periods in American history, uh, especially World War II and, and uh, some of the things that you mentioned after the war, I felt that a little social history uh, should be, you know, presented to people who were much younger and didn't, didn't experience any of these things, didn't live through this, these periods. So there was a real attempt to, uh, you know, give have the book give information as well as as, uh, you know, my own particular life. So that's one of the reasons I, I went into some of these topics that people might have felt were, um, some people might have felt were irrelevant. Well, I think they're totally relevant, and uh, personally, I'm really glad you went into them. Now, we don't have that long left in the show, and there are some specific people that I, I think we need to talk about. Mm -hmm. Back in the context of your experience in the research of UFOs and abductions, I'm going to want to throw some names out, and uh, if you could tell some of these stories, uh, because they're, they're gone into in some detail in the book. Um, for example, late last year, we basically uh, took to task a character uh, by the name of Bill Nell, a criminal, who, among other things, talked about uh, his bogus interview with Walter Cronkite. Now, it turns out that completely unrelated to Nell, you have uh, an experience that you detail in the book about another quote-unquote journalist bogus interview with Walter Cronkite. Could you elaborate on that story, please? Right. Well, it, this happened back in uh, uh, probably 75 uh, when I was first getting involved in this, and I noticed a headline in the National Enquirer that said, uh, Walter Cronkite, colon, why I believe in UFOs. And, of course, I bought the thing, and I read it, and it was uh, talking about this particular writer's uh, personal interview in the uh, elegant uh, 18th floor office or whatever it was uh, at CBS with Walter Cronkite, and he told the story and that story about UFOs. Uh, so I read this thing, and I called uh, the National Choir, and they explained to me that the author was not a regular staff member, but a, um, a freelancer, and they're publishing a story. And then I called, uh, this, I was given the name, I called the guy, and, and he verified everything that he'd written. He had an odd accent. And then I uh, called CBS, and I wanted to know if there if there had been any uh, statement from Cronkite, and nobody at CBS 
seem to know anything about this article, despite the front page thing. And mm-hmm. as I pointed out in the book, there are not many National Choir readers up there at CBS, evidently. <laughs> and in those days, of course, it was much more uh, shaky a publication than it's become later. It's tried to sort of straighten itself out a bit. But at any rate, uh, uh, the, the woman who I spoke to asked me who I was representing. And I thought, Jesus, I'm not a reporter, you know. So I thought, oh, well, I've, I've written about the subject in places like Village Voice, which I had written the, my first Infamous article about, yeah. yeah. 76. And, uh, and Cosmopolitan Magazine, not telling her that it was the same article that had been reprinted in Cosmopolitan. And uh, she took my phone number, and I left. And when I got home... Um, my wife said, you know, Walter Cronkite called you. And I said, no, no, it must have been somebody in the office. And she said, no, it was Cronkite. So I called this number, and uh, the person said, just a minute. And then suddenly I'm talking to Walter Cronkite. And, of course, every night for years I'd heard, and that's the way it is, Wednesday, you know, that voice he had. And uh, I told him, that by that point, somebody had gotten him the article. And he said he had to tell me that it was made up of the whole cloth. And it never happened. But he wanted to ask me about why I was calling and what was this article I'd written and the Village Voice and so forth. And he ended up questioning me more than I got a chance to question him, which was very interesting because I didn't have the idea I was being interviewed, but I really was in an odd way. (laughs) And when I finally asked him his opinion about UFOs, he gave this sort of equivocal answer that, uh, well, on the one hand, he found it very hard to believe because of this event. The other thing, on the other hand, he had some friends in the Air Force and so on who had, had reported things that they'd seen, and so he said, so, you know, that's the way it is. And, of course, it was a typical Cronkite kind of straddling uh, answer, but he didn't slam the door. And the next thing I did was I called the uh, writer who had assured me this happened, and I said, you know, I talked to Walter Cronkite. I felt very proud of myself saying that. And um, I said, uh, he denies that he ever met you. He doesn't know who you are, and you were never in his office. And the guy said, just a minute, just a minute, and he, he started in this thing. Well, I wasn't in his office, actually. He joined the mm. table and overheard the conversation in Elaine's uh, uh, bar and grill in New York that people go, a lot of uh, writers go to. And so he eavesdropped, and he heard these things. And so the whole article was just based on eavesdropping, not an interview. And uh, anyway, this is basically listening to people talking, not knowing whether they were serious or not, whether he was getting the know, full context of the conversation. He's just sitting exactly. there, and he's listening, and then he writes it up for the National Enquirer. The, the, the final punchline of this is the writer's name was Robin Leach. <laughs> who I think many of us might know went on the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Oh, yes, exactly. More <laughs> eavesdropping, except this time for pay, for good pay. So that's mm-hmm. called eavesdropping for the rich and the famous. And poor, yes. Oh, well, not God. the poor. Eavesdropping for the rich. Oh no, no. Well, Walter Cronkite wasn't poor. Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer to the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? 
Conspiracy Journal, and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net, and we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications, and you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos, and it's all for free. Or drop us a line, Mr. UFO at webtv.net. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked? We answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, separating signal from noise. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. I don't think Bud Hopkins is poor either. He's author of a memoir called Art, Life, and UFOs. And right now we're playing the name game with him where David mentions a name and then we hear about his experiences, his encounters, etc. David, lay another name on us. All right, another name. Um, I just love that it was Robin Leach, by the way, Bud. You know, when I read that, I was like, oh, man, that's so good. What a great punchline for that story. <laughs> you know, because you just, you know, did he even actually overhear a conversation at a table? Somehow I doubt that, too. Um, you know, he was trying to cover his ass with you on the phone, in my exactly. opinion. So another name, and uh, I, I read the story, and I was just like, oh, yeah. Because, again, you have visions of how certain people are, and then you read stories that seem to confirm those visions. And you just feel you feel good about the universe, because it's like, oh, wait, my intuitions are kind of on. Shirley MacLaine. Oh, boy. Well, <laughs> that, that, that that's really... Uh, I mean, it was, it's a story that, shall we say, does not spread her with glory. It makes her no. out a totally narcissistic, uh, unfeeling, cold, theatrical woman. And I'd rather not go into it. It seems like a long time to spend on Shirley MacLaine. Well, basically, let, the, let the reason... People, let people yeah. get it in the book. <laughs> all right, all right. And, and just to point it out, you know, this is someone who has been, she's been very supportive of the Billy Meyer hoax. Yeah, for years, exactly. you know, but sadly, but, you know, she's the kind of person that gets called in to go on Larry King and talk about UFOs. Yeah. And and again, it, it, it's, it's frustrating because, you know, do you see the rational voices being given exposure in the mass media? No, you, yeah. you see the the well-known, in many cases, uh, famous uh, charlatans just getting airtime and it just makes it. That much more difficult to have any well, kind of Well, I think with, with the Shirley, Shirley McLean thing uh, in relation to uh, Larry King, I mean, I, I, I think things like that are really decisions made by, uh, you know, the higher-ups who say, we've got to have a name here, we can't just have, sure, sure. you know, whoever. I know in one case, uh, the, the, one of the programs, uh, there was definitely a situation where 
she was a sort of thrust into the program at the last minute, obviously by the higher ups who thought you know score a couple points in the ratings or something with a name like that, and that's again the fault of the American people, and uh, it's also a, a testimony to the power of uh, the UFO taboo, you know, that mm-hmm. for straight talk that we got to have somebody to defend it who has a name in, in some other area like like films right. uh, in order to sort of represent the other side rather than someone who could represent it, you know, with, with authority. Okay, let's go to a, to a more positive, hopefully, set of memories. Uh, Alan Hynek. Well, Alan Hynek was a, a wonderful man, and, and I was extremely fond of him. And uh, uh, we got along really, really well. And he was—he had these funny little personal quirks. And uh, I told this uh, story in the book about, because I, I had this idea that since he, he dozed off a number of times, that he, he might have a little narcolepsy, but <clears throat> we were asked uh, together to be on a program in Boston, an interview program, and uh, Alan had just gotten in from Europe, and we met at the uh, radio station, went into this incredibly hot little room. This is in the summer, as I recall. It, the interviewer was really interesting, really nice, uh, you know, of the class of interviewers on PowerCast. I mean, really excellent, top, top of the line. At any rate, he... Uh, uh, was asking all these questions, and he had ganged up and saved all the, uh, the terrible little ads that he had to run uh, for, so he could probably have longer straight stretches. So when we took a break, and he's we're all sitting there in this stifling room, and he's playing all these terrible little ads for uh, used car dealers and so on uh, on tapes that he was shoving in and out of the, the tape player. I looked over, and Alan was sound asleep and um, when we resumed uh, his chin was really resting on his chest when we resumed the program the announcer said uh, well now Dr. Hynek had looked over and saw you know and he sort of almost shouted out Dr. Hynek and then <laughs> no reaction turns to me and says oh, but but <laughs> maybe you can answer this question and he had some, some question and so I uh, I took a couple questions from him and then I kicked the house up at the table <laughs> and he sort of woke up and gave me a, a smile <laughs> being pleased that he's back and I just thought the whole thing was extremely funny because I had this image of the guy as I was driving back to uh, Wellfleet to the Cape this guy telling his wife oh my god I had a, an interview we fall asleep on me in the middle of the program has that ever happened on your program do you think I think uh, there are I don't guess that we wish would have fallen asleep yeah. <laughs> they were so busy laying the stuff on us that we almost yeah. couldn't wait for them to go we actually had one guest who was mentioned before the crook who just couldn't take it and yeah, hung basically up hung up on us yes he just could take the heat yeah yeah, yeah that's about it. I think right when now. we had Paula Harris on the show we kind of ended it early with oh. her and we said I guess we can't resolve anything goodbye so yeah. we hung up on her yeah well it's a terrible problem for you guys to be in I I uh, first of all, I, you know, I, I really think you're doing a wonderful, wonderful job, and this is just to uphold the idea of rationality in, in these subjects. 
Uh, so my, I, I tip my hat, which is non-existent, but I, I tip is real. <laughs> but the thing well, is that uh, that you know uh, to to deal with with such people, and I guess you have to represent some of them from time to time, or just to expose them. But uh, anyway, it's. Uh, You've been doing a great job, which is, I think, very difficult. And this well, that, that's very kind of you, good sir. That's very kind. Um, really enigmatic character uh, who you have a really fascinating write-up about, and hopefully you will talk about, Carl Sagan. Yeah, well, the Sagan thing is is a, a kind of uh, mysterious, and it has no end to it in, in my piece. I don't really come to a conclusion as to what... He really knew or really thought, uh, but uh, it was a uh, uh, a situation where I was to be on a Boston TV program uh, and um, many years ago, and I was asked to bring an abductee onto the program, and there was somebody who was willing to do it. So we were in the green room, and um, people were bustling around. And finally, the uh, producer of, of our segment said, uh, with her eyes lowered, she said, oh, by the way, uh, Carl Sagan's going to be on this program. And my heart absolutely sank because here was this guy who was on Johnny Carson all the time, who was uh, known, as I said in the book, more or less as the Pope of Science. Mm-hmm. Uh, who knew everything about every subject that was scientific. And um, I was going to be on a program with him. And, of course, as I said in the book, if I had even shown my paintings and not talked about UFOs and he had said they're lousy paintings, people would have believed him on that, too, even though he had no authority. At any rate, uh, what happened is... Uh, he came over to me and and he said, "You're about Hopkins, aren't you?" And and I didn't recognize him. And we started talking, and he turned out to be very friendly. And uh, I made a few political remarks uh, about the mutual friend and uh, in an organization, liberal organization he was in, and so on. So he understood that we were on the same level, at least uh, politically. Uh, but he he wanted he was anxious to talk about the subject. There was a strange thing that he 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 asked questions. He he raised uh, points, uh, typical uh, critical points. I, in retrospect, was thinking I was thinking at the time, but in retrospect, I was thinking even more so. If he really thought there was nothing to the subject, he would probably have avoided me. He wouldn't have come, wanted to come over and engage in a a real conversation in a friendly way, you know, if he thought this was just uh, totally ludicrous stuff. And uh, at any rate, uh, I found out that I was going to be going on my segment before Sagan, which I immediately knew that that's what the way it set up because he mm-hmm. tried to knock down everything. Yeah. So ultimately, we we corresponded. Um, uh, he made attempts to knock things down. I invited him to look into an abduction case, which was right at the university where he was teaching at Cornell. And uh, he declined, even though in the program, after, I mean, in a break, he said to me very publicly, by the next good UFO, uh, abduction case you have, I'll look into it with you. Call me. Everybody heard that, and uh, it turned out when I did finally approach him and send him a letter about this man and his, he said he he didn't find it interesting. It was just 
it was just um, eyewitness testimony. Maybe he was just telling it for the show, you know. Look, yes. I'm objective, I'm a responsible person, I'll give yeah. due consideration. Yeah, exactly. but as as, there, there was something very hypocritical to me about that. And But we continued to correspond from time to time, and he would send me uh, pieces that he had written and uh, so forth, and ask my opinion, which I, I usually gave it to him in fairly harsh terms. The idea that eyewitness testimony doesn't mean anything, uh, I... I use this example in, in my uh, last book uh, on UFOs, uh, Sight Unseen, that uh, let, let's say someone is shot and a uh, man runs out and uh, a policeman tackles him and wrests uh, his gun away and uh, the gun is tested and the uh, bullets, uh, bullet in the body of the dead man matches this guy's gun and so forth. No eyewitness testimony, right? Except that, who says that the cop tackled him? Well, the cop says that. Well, how do we know the cop is telling the truth? Eyewitness testimony doesn't mean anything. And then this business arresting the gun away, who says that that gun was taken from the guy who, who ran out of the building? Uh, that depends upon people's testimony, personal testimony. And then you get into the science of the one of the bullet matches the bore of the pistol. How do we know that? Well, uh, an expert says so. Oh, uh, an expert says so, meaning that's his testimony, personal testimony. And at every step of the way, instead of what we think of as this solid uh, non-personal testimony, you're, you are saddled with personal testimony, which, of course, in the case of O.J. Simpson, um, they didn't believe the police, the jury. So the idea that personal testimony is worthless is just totally ridiculous. It's something we rely on on almost everything all day long. And uh, I uh, didn't, of course, make that point to him at the time. Uh, I, I did part of it in a letter to him. But uh, at the very end of his life, uh, we exchanged letters and I... I had seen pictures of him, and he was looked looked horrible. And but he was, uh, you know, emaciated, you know, in the last stages as, as of his disease. And I felt very sorry for him, and I read him a letter. Bud, we're out of time, unfortunately. Can you tell our listeners where they could learn more about the things you do and about that new book? Well, uh, I recommend that they uh, on that they that they uh, contact us at uh, intrudersfoundation.org and intruders foundation of course is one word .org and uh, there's information about my book and uh, how it can be purchased and uh, information about a coming seminar which is going to be on, on October 17th with Kathy Martin who uh, was the niece as most people know of, of Betty Hill and she'll be playing some of the tapes of the hypnotic sessions of Barney Hill and so forth uh, but at any rate, they should go to uh, intrudersfoundation.org and they'll get all that information. I just want to add uh, real quickly, Gene, that uh, the book is just fantastic and uh, one of the best reads that uh, that I've had in, in at least a couple of years doing the show. I really enjoyed the book, Bud. Thank you. Well, thank you. Incidentally, one quick thing. Kathy Martin uh, emailed me that... Um, 
she's supposed to be working on another book, and she said, but I've been reading your book, and I'm so fascinated that I put my own aside, and it's caused me a problem. <laughs> Excellent. Bud Hopkins, thanks for joining us this week on the PowerCast. Thank you. Thanks, Bud. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.